creation that we are now, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. It is the time of joy. It's the season of joy, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the celebration of our new birth in him. We talked a few weeks ago about Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. We talked about the beginning. And this sermon today, even though it says it's Easter sermon, the title of it is On the First Day of the Week, New Beginnings. So today, God continues his creation. He created the heavens and the earth back at the beginning of time. Today, and, and God created out of nothing back then. There was nothing that he created from. He placed man in the garden to rule and reign over the earth, over his kingdom on his behalf. Today, we celebrate God's new creation, where Jesus walked out of the tomb also into a garden, a clear link to Genesis by John, and into a new creation raised from the dead into a perfect new kingdom. So we're going to read today from John chapter 20, the resurrection chapter. We're going to read different parts of it. Starting now at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Well, two times in this section of scripture, what I just read there and then again in verse 19, the, John talks about this being the first day of the week. Not the third day since the crucifixion, but the first day of the week. And why does he do that? Well, just because in Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth on the first day. And now God creates again. And John deliberately talks about that in order to evoke those same images of a new creation. A new creation from, from nothing, from chaos. And Paul says in Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 17, that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so what we have in John's chapter 20 and in the other Gospels is the great story of human history. Darkness and sin for centuries, failed hopes, failed efforts, failed kingdoms, failed saviors, and then Jesus bursting forth with new life on Easter morning. And the message of Jesus' resurrection, his victory over the dark powers of the cross, becomes a sign of the new life, which one day will flood all of creation. That God raised Jesus from the dead, brought the dead to life. And we're talking stone-cold dead. No hope, despair, no resuscitation. He brought this cold, lifeless body back to life again, breathing, thinking, living, loving. 
Is this any less amazing than God creating the heavens and the earth from nothing? I mean, think about it. I don't know about you, but my chance of raising anything from the dead is about the same as speaking a new universe into existence. It, it's, it's of the same miraculous quality. And yet, this is what our God can do. He can bring to life those things that are dead. And not only that, to give us a new life, but he overcame death as well. He defeated the very best that the enemy could throw at him. Satan threw his knockout punch, and God overcame it. Satan has nothing better than death to offer in his book of arsenal of weapons, and yet God defeated that as well. And so Easter is the beginning of a new creation which has been made possible by the overcoming of the forces of corruption and decay in the death of Jesus. And so the disciples show up and they find the stone is removed from the entrance to the grave, which shows that the grave has been conquered. There is no stone there in front of it. And remember, we're talking about a real resurrection here. In our day and age, we're encouraged to believe that this is simply an illustration, simply a story. Simply, this is symbolic of new life. But this was real. Because in verses 6 and 7, we see that two men witnessed it. Okay? We see Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved, who is John, the author of the gospel. And why would... John put that in there because the first to really witness was Mary Magdalene, according to this gospel and the other gospels. But in those days, women's testimony was actually not admissible in court. So they could go and say anything. There could be a hundred women and no one would believe them because they were women. And so John here in the gospel provides incontrovertible evidence, which is admissible in a Jewish court of law about the resurrection. And not only by these two witnesses, but 500 others. If, if you continue to read in the Gospels. And so we know that this really happened. And it's not coincidental that this proof that God provides to us in his word is so different from the proof that the Jews used in their kangaroo court to convict Jesus. Because if you remember that, they couldn't even get two guys to agree on anything. But here we have hundreds and hundreds of witnesses testifying to this. So the resurrection is real. Jesus raised from the dead... And, of course, he had raised other people from the dead when he was walking on the earth. But this was different, because if you remember the story of Lazarus, Lazarus comes from the tomb wearing his grave clothing. He was going to die again, and he kept his grave clothing. But Jesus' resurrection body passed through his grave clothes, spices and all, in much the same way as he later appeared to the disciples in the locked room without opening a door. The description that John provides and that God gives us about this resurrection is powerful, it's vivid, and it's different. It's different, not the sort of thing that anybody would have dreamed up. In Old Testament times, the Jews believed that there would be a resurrection from the dead in the age to come. And the age to come is what the prophets talked about. And they said, well, after God brings judgment, he's going to raise up a remnant. And the age to come will be here when God rules over his creation. And they believed that the present evil age, with all of its corruption, sin, and decay, would be defeated at that time, and God's new world would be instituted, and all the dead would be resurrected at that point. Some to glory, some to condemnation. But it was going to happen all at once. That's what the Jews believed. And Isaiah prophesied about this age to come back in 40, uh, chapter 43, verses 18, 19, when he said, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, this is God talking, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? 
And in Isaiah 65, 17, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Now, Jesus had been walking, doing his ministry for three years, telling his disciples and all the people that the kingdom was coming in a way that they did not expect. It wasn't going to happen the way the Pharisees said it was going to happen. A dying Messiah, humiliated, raised from the dead after three days, and when he told his closest disciples that, they admonished him and said, how can this be? This is not what's going to happen. They expected a brand new creation. Evil eliminated, all the dead raised, and what they got was Jesus. One man resurrected, and the kingdom inaugurated through that one man. And Jesus tells them, this is the sign of the new creation. This is the age to come. It's not what you thought. It is what you see in front of you, me, Jesus Christ, inaugurating this in myself and in you when you are my followers. And so when he tells Nicodemus in chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, he's saying that our spiritual rebirth is our sign of new creation. But Nicodemus didn't get it. He was one of the Pharisees. He didn't get it. And other people didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. And we don't get it sometimes entirely either. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I love that passage. Great passage. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> we know that we have been spiritually born again. Understanding what Nicodemus could not when Jesus told him in, in, in chapter 3, verse 3, that he must be born again. But we overlook the fact that this new creation is something that we also don't expect. It's not just about going to heaven to be with Jesus when we die. There is a new creation. It's not that we're bound for glory with Jesus at some later point in time. There's a new creation here and now. It's real. It exists now. We are citizens in it. And we've got a job to do as long as we're in this new creation at this point. Well, we live now in this overlap of the age to come, which Jesus inaugurated and which God promised in the Old Testament. But we also live in the present evil age, right? With its sorrow, its sin, its darkness, its death. The present evil age goes on. We still sin and die. And why does that happen, we ask? Because this is God's rescue operation. Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead and inaugurating the new creation is God's rescue operation. It is an act of love, and God is unwilling to give up on any until they have the opportunity to hear the news and to accept it themselves. You see, in Genesis 1, heaven, which was God's space, and earth, which was our space, were designed to work together. Man on earth was supposed to be God's representative here on earth, communicating freely with God, speaking with God, receiving his instructions, asking for his provision, and then ruling and having dominion about over everything that God had created in the image of God. Psalm 8.6 tells us, You have given man dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That was our job. That was Adam's job in the Garden of Eden. And heaven and earth were designed to work together, to overlap, to interlock with each other. And when we look at Jesus' actions in the Gospels, we see the mighty works and miracles of God. We see healings. We see exorcisms. We see multiplication of provision and food. But we also see from Jesus true humanity and love. 
We see stopping to talk, feeling the pain of people, visiting with people, doing those things that as humans we're called to do. And so Jesus was this overlap between heaven and earth, the place where they interlocked, where they meshed, where the things happened in both as they were supposed to happen. And so we also now, as a result of what Jesus did, and as a result of this day on which he defeated death, are new creations. And we're meant to stand at this same threshold, being truly man for the kingdom of God. The first man failed, but the second Adam succeeded. And he walked out into the garden and took his rightful place as king over God's creation. And we also are called to stand at this dangerous place where that happens. And it is a dangerous place. It's a place of battle. Just like it was in the Garden of Eden, it's a place of battle. And we put on the armor that God gives us, and we fight the good fight for what God wants us to fight for. And so we are a new creation through Jesus' death and resurrection, a newly embodied life in a newly constituted creation, living where heaven and earth intersect. And it's a dangerous place and one we take too casually, I'm afraid. But as we've been learning in the last few weeks, we don't have to do this on our own power. It's not like we've got to muster up the strength to be able to fight and to resist and to do all the right things. God equips us to be able to do that. And how does God equip us to live in this place? Well, we're going to look back at the resurrection story again, and we see five instances where Jesus intentionally meets the disciples and us, if we can see ourselves in these stories, where they are, filling them up and then sending them out. Well, first we have Mary outside the tomb. In verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She's constant, and and you can imagine, she's lost the man she loves, she's lost the Savior, she's weeping uncontrollably, unrestrained, and Jesus asks her in verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? It's like he's saying to her, do you still not know who I am and who you're seeking? Who Who I am? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? And yet, we see in this resurrection a new creation. He comforts her and he dries her tears. Anguish and despair on her part, replaced in an instant by astonishment and delight. Rabboni, she cries out when she realizes it's him. And she goes and announces the risen Lord. Has he dried our tears when we've been in grief and all these things that have happened to us? Yes, he does that. Second, John, the writer of the gospel, the disciple, he races to the tomb, okay, Probably he's faster than Peter. Peter's probably an old guy. Like No, probably not. But anyway, races to the tomb, probably fearing grave robbers at that time. Common problem in that day and age. In fact, the emperor Claudius around then had ordered capital punishment for those convicted of destroying tombs, removing bodies, and even displacing the ceiling stones that were there. So this was a problem. So they raced there. And of course, he and Peter have been hiding in fear, not knowing what's going to happen to them, not knowing what's going on. And then in verse 8, we read then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. He sees evidence, but he doesn't see the risen Lord. But he believes. And has that happened to us, or do we know people where we've seen God working in our life? We haven't seen Jesus, but we see God working in our life. And we believe, and we say, I do believe, Lord, I do believe you're looking out for us. 
And Jesus does that for John at that point as well. And then you have all the other guys, the disciples. Mary had gone and told them that she had seen the Lord, right? And Luke 24 reports that they thought these words to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them, okay? Because they were women. They wouldn't believe them, okay? No, but I'm serious. Back then, you wouldn't believe it. It was just like a, a silly tale. So they're, they're terrified, okay? They're terrified. And, and John tells us in verses 19 and 20, on the evening of that day, again, the first day of the week, okay, the first day of new creation, where the disciples were, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They're terrified and completely unsure of what was happening in their life and what was going to happen to them. And Jesus comes and gives peace to the terrified, the scared, the uncertain, those who don't know what's happening tomorrow, the next day, a month from now. Is that you? Because if it is, Jesus will show up to give you peace. If you accept him to be the Lord of your life, he promises to give us this peace as he gave it to the disciples. Well, fourth, we have Thomas. We all know the story of Thomas. Thomas, one of the twelve, from verse 24, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. I just can't believe that, okay? So what happens? Jesus shows up. He challenges Thomas puts an end to his doubts. He says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus shows up and he meets Thomas's conditions for belief. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I see that. What does Jesus do? He shows up and he shows him exactly what Thomas says. I need to see this before I believe. He proves that he hears his disciples, even when he's not present, because he wasn't there when those statements were made. And he removes all grounds for disbelief, if that's what you want. The most famous unyielding skeptic, we all know Doubting Thomas, gives the most profound confession in the Bible. My Lord and my God, what a confession that is. You know, in spite, um, and that's my story as well, by the way, because in spite of everything that people had told me for many, many, many years, I refused to believe. It was a great story, but I didn't think it was true. But I wanted to believe, and so one day I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I can't do it. You know, my training as a lawyer, all of these things have just caused me to be so skeptical of this story of miracle that I can't do it. Remove my unbelief. And he did. It was like, boom. It was like a physical feeling. And at that point, I became a new creation, a new person. And he'll do that for any one of us that sits here today saying, yeah, you know, I don't know about that. If you say, Lord, take away my unbelief, he will take away our unbelief, just like he did for Thomas. Well, the fifth, the aimless, or should we say shiftless, disciples. So we go to chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. Then they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So 
Jesus appeared to them in the room. And they believed, but they had no idea what to do. They had no idea what to do. They had been told to meet him in Galilee, so they obediently go there waiting. And you can see him just milling about, right? A bunch of guys. What are we going to do now? What are we supposed to do? We've got no instructions. What are we going to do? So Peter says, well, I'm going fishing. And everybody piles into the boat, right? Because it's something to do. Well, the disciples, even though they've seen and they believe, they, they lack the sense of mission and the spirit of unity and joy and assurance which the Spirit brings to people. They're coming to grips with the facts of the resurrection by this point, but they don't know what Jesus meant when he said in chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? So Jesus shows up. He reassures them. He meets their physical needs. He uh, serves them, and he takes them back, just so that they remember, to their first experience with him in Luke 5, where Jesus sees them. He's on the beach, and the guys are out in the boat, and he says, you guys caught anything? No. Well, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Peter goes, well, Master, you know, we've been fishing all night. We kind of know what we're doing. And they do, and they come up with a full net of fish, okay? And that's got to be fresh in their minds, even though it was a couple years before. So Jesus shows up on the beach at Galilee now after the resurrection, And he says the same thing. He says, throw your nets out again, and the net's full, and they go, it's Jesus. They recognize Jesus, okay? And they got it. And then he feeds them, okay? And one of the things that we miss sometimes in this story is that he didn't feed them with the fish they caught. Because what it says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and some bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you've caught And then Jesus feeds them, feeds all of them, okay? He prepares them a breakfast, and then he multiplies it just like the feeding of the 5,000. And he shows them that the risen Jesus comes to feed us and to commission us and to provide for us in whatever we decide to do for him in the kingdom. And then finally we got Peter. Jesus confronts Peter at the point of his failures, right? Peter denies him three times, denies Jesus three times, and he asks him three times, do you love me? Okay. And Peter's grieved, not because Jesus is asking the question, because he, he feels it every time, his denial. Okay. But he does that, and Jesus gives Peter forgiveness. And he gives him a fresh commission. Because for the child of God, failures are never final. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, our failures do not define us. We are new creations in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we have Peter being told that, in fact, after this resurrection, or after this restoration, Jesus entrusts him with his most precious possessions, his lambs. He says, feed my lambs, take care of my lambs. So do we see ourselves in these examples that that God has given us in this resurrection story? Do we see the overwhelming mercy and grace of God in our lives? Do we see the tender mercy of Jesus Christ as he stoops to us in our fears and in our failures and in our sufferings? Do we see the intersection of heaven and earth in our lives? And, and, and what, is, what does it mean that we are new creations as followers of Jesus? How do we become in Christ, as Paul puts it? Well, Ryan gave us the scripture before from the book of Romans. If we see our failures and we admit them to God, and if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. What a day 
to do that if you haven't done it yet. The day of resurrection. Truly God raised him from the dead. There were 500 witnesses, so we know that God raised him from the dead. Today's the day that you can confess that he is the Lord of your life because you want what he has to give you, this new life in Jesus Christ. And if you want to believe, but you just can't because of your past life, confess that as well. Ask him to allow you to believe, and he will do it, and I can testify to that. And with our new lives, what are we supposed to do? Well, the new creation is not something that we just wear. Okay? I'm saying I'm going to heaven when I die. Okay? That's great, but that's not all we're supposed to do. We live in this new creation. We live in the kingdom of God now. This is the intersection of heaven and earth, and we all have jobs to do here. We bring the signs of the new life out into this present evil age. We work for unity in the church, and we work for holiness. Now, the world wants to bring about unity through political means. The only one who can unite that which sin has ruined is Jesus Christ. Look around this room. What else, what else can, exp- can explain this disparate group of people that are here? What else but the new creational works of God can explain how so many different kinds of people would gather for feast and fellowship and worship? The only thing that explains that is the saving work of Jesus Christ and this new creation of his. And so let's strive for holiness to reject the sinful pleasures of the world. Eli has been preaching on this. God will do this for you if you ask him. So many of you know this is true. Share your story with someone today about how God has done that for you. Encourage someone else who may be struggling with that. Know and tell people that Jesus is Lord and that the government or any other political party is not Lord, is not God, cannot solve these problems. Practice a different way to be a human, the way that Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is already reigning. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's got it. He's reigning. His reign is active. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is what's happening now in this world. And finally, death is swallowed up in victory. The victory at the empty tomb has defeated death. Remember, Jesus walked out of the tomb into the garden, just like in Genesis 1, the new Adam, who did not sin and who wants us to accompany him in spreading his kingdom here and now. And he will do this in us, just like with the disciples 2,000 years ago. He is risen. risen Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouraging word that you give us that meets us in our place of failure and doubt, despair, in our sicknesses, in the struggles and things that we deal with in our lives, Lord God. But we know that you have overcome them. And you will walk with us through these, that you will give us the provision that we need. Lord, we thank you for the new creation that comes through Jesus Christ. We ask that you would equip us to share this good news with the world around us, with the people sitting next to us now, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And I think we can stand for the last number.